Welcome back to Behind the Play. My name is Alex Adams, and today I'm very excited to introduce Travis Yost of TSN. Thanks so much, Travis, for taking the time and, and coming on the podcast. Anytime. How you doing, man? Uh, I just want to ask you first a little bit about your career, Travis. When did you first think you might want to pursue a career in sports journalism? <laughs> I'm still thinking about that. Um, fun <laughs> fact, um, still a still my side job. However, um, I think you ask a really important question, right? It's uh, it's a very different uh, it's a very different reality for people in the workforce right now. There are a lot of people with two jobs, it, even people who are insanely successful in their first career. A lot of people do it either for hobbies or side jobs or additional income, whatever the case is. But when I went, when I was doing my undergrad, I did my undergrad at Arizona State. And uh, at the time, uh, I, I had, let's say, time to kill on weeknights and started watching a ton of out-of-market hockey and then started writing about it. And I did that for the first about a year or so. I started covering the Ottawa Senators over at Hockey Buzz. Mm -hmm. And I didn't, I had no, the, the point I'm trying to get to is I had utterly no idea that I was doing anything other than just like something out of self-enjoyment. Like I write some thoughts about a hockey team and people seem to care about this and I'm not entirely sure why anyone would read me. And then my readers went from like 10 to a hundred to a thousand to 10,000. Right. And it just kept multiplying. And the thing that I did not realize I was doing, um, it was a feedback loop, right? The more I was writing, the better I was getting at it. And the better I was getting at it, the more people were reading and the more reliable I was putting content out there, the more frequently people were checking. Uh, but about 2010, uh, I started really getting into hockey analytics because side separate to this, my real career and what I'm, what I tend to be uh, competent at in life, which there's very few things in that bucket, by the way. Uh, is I, I really am driven and motivated and interested in numbers. And I thought that this was a massive um, missing niche or realm in the world mm -hmm. of hockey coverage. And I, I felt then the same way I do 13 years later, which is freakish to say, but uh, it's, it's a massive area of opportunity for organizations. It's become kind of the ground zero of what I write and how I write. And uh, I've been, I've stayed on with T I, I signed on with TSN. I'd spend time writing at the sporting news and the Ottawa citizen and all paid jobs at that point. And I was like, wow, people are paying me to, you know, to write about stuff that I cannot believe this would have ever happened five years prior to that. I've been at TSN since 2014. This is actually my ninth year. This will be the ninth. Uh, I always say TSN is uh, Travis sports network in the summer because anyone important gets the summer off and then they let me let her rip in the summer. So I get a good eight week stretch here when everyone else is on vacation, but, uh, really enjoying it and really uh, and and it, the one thing I would emphasize is a lot of it was just repetition of something that I enjoyed doing and now it's actually not only become a, a regular and reliable income stream for me on something I enjoy doing it's supplemented my real career I, mm -hmm. I find myself to be a very strong communicator um, very efficient technically speaking I've you know I've learned to, to comprehensive levels are and Python and ways to code and, and ways to capture data and data mine. And all of this, it's like a tree with many different branches and tentacles. And you, you don't realize it until you're kind of deeper down the road. What you mentioned, how you feel as a, the, the NHL or the game of hockey is kind of missing stuff and, and analytics kind of uh, clogs that hole. What do you think people are missing in the game that analytics bring to, to the game of hockey and that, that you think are really important that people might miss? Uh, just like you can be a bad numbers guy or a bad scout or anything, there's there's nuance to every niche, right? But um, 
the reality is human, the eyes of humans lie to themselves all the time, me, you, and everyone else on the planet. And you hear horror stories sometimes um, uh, of whether it's the scouting world in particular or organizational decision-making. And by the way, this is not unique to hockey. It's every industry for the most part now um, where the justification to do something or not to do something had no mathematical underpinning. And I don't, I think that's like a minimum bar of expectations to clear in 2023. It's not that I'm a, I'm a believer that everything can be quantified. Right. And it just, a lot of times it just takes effort. It just takes effort. Right. And there's, there's always the question of, is, is it overkill? Um, how much do you want to toss away qualitative analysis and scouting? I see all that stuff as complimentary, right? Like if, if you were to unleash a numbers only driven organization in the NHL, just as an example, it would fail miserably, right? Because you don't have the a core component of the nuance of the context that you're going to get from video analysis, just as one example, right? The same way I believe that I always, I'm very reticent and I'm very, um, I, I shrug off the notion um, when I hear, and it's still rampant in the NHL, less so in some of the other sports leagues where, you know, scouting is, I can get into a building, I can spend three hours watching a game, I know exactly what happened, I close up the briefcase, I head home. Not, It's rampant still in the league in 2023. Mm-hmm. Um, and quite frankly, the organizations that think that way, first off, they're much smaller in number relative to where they are 10 years ago, and I think that's obvious. But you, you, you see themselves di- differentiating themselves in a bad way. Um, there are very few of those organizations that are tend to be the cream of the crop. And you look around the league right now, Tampa, Carolina, Colorado, Vegas. I mean, these are organizations that are, they have brilliant hockey on ice. They have brilliant hockey minds. They have brilliant scouting departments, but they've really been able to complement a lot of that by doing it the right with a, with a mathematical brooch, kind of underpinning or supplementing um, how, what they do. And, and to me, if nothing else, it becomes a good buyback and it's a way to make organizations more sensitive to risk. Um, you think of some of the worst decisions, the ones that we've all mocked over the last 10 years, many of which we knew at the time, not in hindsight. Um, almost every single one of them, the numbers were screaming, blinking red lights, bad move, right? Whether it was the Milan Lucic contract, I, I, I make fun of the Mikhail Granlin deal in Pittsburgh. It made yeah. it, it's great deadline. But another just classic, your risk reward was so negative and so muted that it, it was just it was illogical to think that would have panned out. Um, and it's not the same numbers guys get it right, right all the time, the same way scouts don't get it right all the time. But it, it's got to be complementary to one another. And, and how would you say you weighed it? Like you, you said it's more quantitative. Like that's kind of the basis for you. But how would you maybe weight the qualitative or – or kind of the eye test for lack of a better word compared to. Yeah. It's a a really good question. It's something I've learned to do more over the years that kind of one of those learned experiences. There was a point where, you know, I think the seesaw, I personally tip the seesaw a little bit too much towards numbers driven approach. Even, even if, even if I think the numbers are lying to me, trust them. And I've learned to take a more contextual or nuanced approach. And what I mean by that is a lot of the times when I see something and I'll give you an example in a minute. When I see something that is strikingly variant to what I would have suspected, I'll go I'll go back and rewatch these games and I'll watch segments or shifts of a player and I'll I'll try to better understand, especially now as the as the art of the game or the science of the game has moved away from goals, assists, points, block shots and hits. Like I think I think a lot of people have latched onto the idea of like lines matter pairings matter five-man units matter team you know chemistry can be quantified and i that i'm a firm believer in that Mm -hmm. and a lot of times it's understanding how players 
impact one another. One of the first uh, indicators for me, and I didn't, it took me years to get there. Um, but we always, you know, we always joke as a community about like the, the dominance of first was Pavel Datsuk, right? Hall of Famer, Patrice Bergeron, Hall of Famer, how they have a rising tide lifts all boats impact, right? Anyone who plays with them is automatically better. But then I think the interesting the player that really flipped me to it in a, in a unique way was Mark Stone, because he was huh. not the caliber of player of Pavel Datsuk or Patrice Bergeron, but he was so two-way dominant. And every player that plays with Mark Stone to this day is materially better. And I remember just watching some of his 2015, 2016 shifts in Ottawa, yeah. trying to understand how a player on such a middling, mediocre team could have such an outsized impact. And he's not a freakish skater. He's not an 18% shooter. Um, yeah, very good defensively, but like, what's the impact he's having? Fast forward to the example I was going to give you. I, I spent some time obviously covering the Golden Knights and they run through the Stanley Cup this year at TSN quite a bit. Um, you can you could write about almost every player there. Everyone is a unique story. I, I've been very curious about Brett Houghton, um, mm. who was kind of like a dumpster dive ad for the Vegas Golden Knights. He becomes the third the third man on a three man band with Mark Stone and Chandler Stevenson. And it's like, OK, well, you, you went from fourth liner once again to now playing on a truly robust top six. But if you watch Brett Houghton in the playoffs and then you watched him when he was with the Rangers, you can see a player who plays so more confidently and has so much mm -hmm. more spatial awareness because of the competency of his line mates. And is that a skill of Brett Houghton? Maybe, maybe not. But to me, it's a, it's a testament to the coaching staff that they're able to get more out of that player than other coaching staffs may have in the past. It was obvious in the numbers it's not something I would have believed watching him because I would have said, hey, Mark Stone and Chandler Stevenson are driving that line. But then you watch you watch the three man, the line player, you watch the five man unit play and Brett Howden's creating havoc in front of the net. He's doing all the little things right. It's not to say he's driving the bus on that line, but he is additive on that line. And that those are the sorts of things that you're not going to get unless you actually go through the video again. I want to go off that a little bit because a lot of questions I have and I've read and seen about is the difference between the regular season and the playoffs. And, and for you, do you see that in the numbers? Do you see specific maybe metrics that kind of seem to be more determinant of winning in the playoffs compared to the regular season? Maybe just talk about that in terms of the numbers from the playoffs uh, to and, and the regular season. I, I do think there's first one thing that I find hilarious is the postseason seems each postseason seems to take a unique storyline that doesn't follow future or prior postseason. So for example, the NHL has been in this like three year blistering scoring run where you can't slow it down. Everyone loves it by and large. It's better for the league. And then this postseason scoring was down like 7%. Right. And it was relative to the regular season. And sometimes it's like whack-a-mole. And by the way, the, the inherent volatility in playoffs, you get a white hot goalie team's going to crew. Sergei Bobrovsky took Florida through and then they get to Vegas and they look like the eight seed in the East. Right. And it's as soon as he capitulates, so there's a there's truly a ton of randomness when it comes to the Stanley Cup playoffs. The one thing I do believe is I think there's two takeaways. Sorry, two takeaways mm -hmm. from this year in particular. One is unique to Vegas and one is true of Vegas, but I think true for a number of teams. Um, the first and I'll I'll work in that order. The first is that building a a championship team means building a contender for a long time. And I don't know how many examples we need of that. It feels like an obvious point. Um, but, you know, people, people 
use it usually to make fun of teams like the Calgary Flames, and they're not alone in that. But it's like Vegas has been in the league six times. What is it? What is it? They've been to the Eastern Conference final like four times, Stanley Cup twice, like just a remarkable run. But I could say that another way, right? Five or six seasons they failed, right? And won. They won the Stanley Cup. And by the way, it's true for Vegas. It's true for Colorado. It's true for Tampa Bay just in recent years. It, it may very well be true for the Toronto Maple Leafs or the Toronto Maple Leafs may go the way of the San Jose Sharks, a, a, another unbelievable regular season team year after year after year, 10 years ago that never got over the hill. Reality is you need more than one bite at the apple. And and I, I compare that to a team. And by the way, I think they're very well built. But like you look at the moves the Rangers made at the trade deadline, bringing in Tarasenko, bringing in Patrick Kane. And there's always going to be time and opportunity for rentals. It's not a comment of being anti-rental, but it does make you, I think, adjudicate risk a little more differently when you are cashing in current and future assets to take that bite of the apple. And maybe you're trying to take a bigger bite in one given year. I think that can be justified, but you have to understand the opportunity cost of that if it doesn't work out. And the reality is, I don't care who you are, or how good your team is. Uh, the odds are always against you, no matter what, right? It's just the reality of a one versus 15 scenario when you get to the playoffs. So that's one. The other one that I think is unique for team building, I, it's it's a tr- it's a it's such a true comment in the modern era. You cannot win in this league without having minimum three quality lines and usually four. It is exceptionally hard. One of the reasons I was bullish on the Edmonton Oilers for the first time this first time this year and a little bit of last year and never before that is they actually have started to build out that middle six so that they weren't getting their clock clean further down the lineup. I've seen, we've seen any number of teams, whether it was San Jose in years past, the Anaheim Ducks, when they had the gets off Perry line clicking the very top or the Edmonton Oilers um, predating like 2019, 2020, very top heavy teams that are very challenged when they play quality opponents in the playoffs. It, it's why I have among all the organizations, in the NHL right now, I think you could make an argument that the Carolina Hurricanes are the most well run. I mean, I look at that lineup top to bottom. Um, they fell short once again. Um, there are people that are going to nitpick their ability to convert on scoring chances. I think it's a genuine issue with the team. They lack finishing talent again. But I also would emphasize that prior to this being an issue, it was Carolina can't buy a save. They don't have a goaltender and they resolve that. And it goes to the original point I made, which is building a contender is perpetual, right? You're consistently mm-hmm. trying to build a quality lineup and Carolina, if nothing else, they're going to give you four quality lines and two to three really dangerous pairings. And it's why they're so dominant in the, in the regular season, they blow the doors off teams and more, you know, if you can sign a Connor McDavid type to a 13 million deal, you don't even blink, right? You sign that deal immediately. But the reality is, if whether it's through drafting and developing and, and having a, a cost friendly bottom six that can deliver or just being smart with your additions, players like Ivan Barbashev for Vegas, just as one of many examples, um, I, I rounding out those lineups is is very important. You cannot just win off your top line or a top six anymore. And and with that, I, I want to ask you a little bit about goaltending, because in a cap world, you can't spend as much as you want on, on anyone. And there's kind of this debate now with Aiden Hill winning the Stanley cup and obviously Vasilevsky and Hellebuck might get traded and signed to a big deal. But so in your mind with goaltending in a cap world, what is better? Is it to prioritize maybe a tandem like Carolina, like Vegas, or is it to pay for an elite goalie? If it's someone of the ilk of maybe a Hellebuck or a Vasilevsky. Yeah. So Fascinating question. I think I would argue I would argue this is probably the most debated question in organizations right now, by the way, for roster Mm. building. So the way me and you are shooting the shit about it is the same way that, you know, 32 GMs are thinking about it the same way. 
Um, I think the rule, and this is a, <laughs> it's not a hard and fast rule, but it's the, the tandem is going to be one much more cap friendly and allow you to chase advantages, especially advantages where, you know, you may more have more confidence in your investment. Uh, I make this point all the time. Teams are much more confident in the way they're willing to pay forwards than they are defensemen. And they're way more confident mm. in the way they're willing to pay defensemen than they are goaltenders, right? Mm. Goaltenders are extremely volatile. They, they, they're Aiden Hills, yet one of endless examples of a guy who it seemed like he flipped a switch right overnight. And by the way, that switch might flip right back down next year. Right. So who knows um, that I, I think I think it's absolutely worth chasing the platoon um, in the absence of that that elite number one goaltender, because it is going to be more cost advantageous to teams, generally speaking, um, that with that said, that does that shouldn't make teams reticent to signing star goaltenders because having a goaltender who can outperform on a nightly basis is one of the biggest advantages you can have. It might be the biggest advantage. Yeah. The question is, can you actually find a goaltender who's going to yield that for many years? And by the way, I may change this line of thought two years from now. Again, <laughs> for many years, I've kind of kicked this around and I, I have never been the like, goaltenders or voodoo and just, you know, throw up your hands and just spin a wheel. Like I, I, I think there, there's has to be more to a science than that. I, I feels a little lazy, even if like the broad and overarching point is it's hard to predict, which is true. Um, I wrote something last year um, and man, I, I really should do a deeper dive on it. Maybe this off season, but I, the one thing that I think is worth chasing when you pay for goaltenders, isn't necessarily outperformance. It's, um, reliability. And what I mean mm. by reliability, the example I used last summer was why it made sense to pay Darcy Kemper. And their argument for Darcy Kemper was this, no matter when, no matter what year you looked at, Darcy Kemper's range of performance ranged from good to very good. And there's some seasons that he was good, top 10, top 12 goalie. There's some seasons he was very good, top six, top seven goaltender. Your confidence in that goaltender delivering a, delivering a quality season in subsequent years is very high. Or alternatively, if you're risk averse, your risk assessment of him relative to almost every other goalie in the league is going to be much more muted because it's like the guy is generally incapable of sinkers, right? And it's, again, this is not foolproof. Injuries happen. Fatigue happens. Okay? Goaltenders go through any number of things the same way all professional athletes do. But in that same argument, it was an argument against a goaltender like Jack Campbell, right? And the Jack Campbell deal com has completely blown up in Edmonton. Yeah. And, and a lot of that, and I think, and again, this is this is a little bit of an argument of convenience, I concede. But like the argument there, right? Darcy Kemper's track record was much more robust. It was much longer in the tooth. Jack Campbell's performance not only was starting to capitulate towards the tail end of the prior year in Toronto – his range of outcomes was much wider, much wider. Yeah. And, and that is always a little bit scary. I will actually slap myself on the wrist for, for one example, and I'll tell you where the Darcy, Camp, Darcy Kemper gambit would fail. Robin Leonard would be a good example mm. of that. Now, Robin Leonard has been a very reliable goaltender in the NHL, but what happened here? He ran into significant injury problems. He's got multiple hip issues. Robin Leonard may not even play again. I mean, we have no idea the status yeah. of Robin Leonard. So that, that's a deal that would have blown up in your face. Do teams and organizations and fans have more time for, well, injuries set this guy career back and we kind of have to pick up the pieces? Absolutely. I think that's I think that's a much more digestible miss than than signing a player to a bad deal where there was inherent risk. 
but that, again, that's what I, that my point, right? You're, you're, you're working like 80th, 85th percentile. You're trying to get most right. I always, I always argue that a, the, a sign of a great GM is his good deals to bad deals are outweighed four to one. And the point is, I don't care who your favorite GM is. I can go find some stinkers, right? And it, it's just, it's inevitable. But on average, it's the Kyle Dubas argument, right? Go, go, go criticize the Nick Felino deal all day long. I will join you the same way that everyone else will. Um, go criticize him over what they did with Jeremy McCann. I will as well. But if you're going to bring up those two examples, I can give you 10 that outweigh him, right? And it's, yeah. that's how you, to me, you measure a good front office. And I want to go a little bit on the Leafs because you had an interesting tweet about Austin Matthews and that he'd be a fool to sign an eight-year deal with Toronto. Maybe talk about why you, why you think that. And, and maybe is Matthews kind of changing the, the, the game in terms of high-profile players choosing to kind of bet on themselves more like the NBA in, in terms of short-term contracts to maximize their value? Yeah, I got so I got beat up for this. And I'm like, man, there's sometimes I get beat up for saying something and I'm like, man, I think about it the next day and you're like, yep, I kind of understand why I struggled with this one for two reasons. Number one, um, inherently, or what was, what should have been obvious, right? There is a, a very real cap landscape change in front of the NHL in the next few years. And it's two-tailed, right? Not only is the growth of the current cap extremely tight, which is restricting not just Toronto, but every other team in the league and their ability to spend, um, and what that maxima dollar looks like, that's that's piece of it. The other piece is there is multiple looming rights deals in, in front of the NHL that is inherently going to lift the cap. And we saw it to an extreme level in the NBA, I want to say about five seasons ago, that took the cap, I think, up like $20 million in a blank. Don't quote me on the number. It was an insane amount, though. And I, I don't expect that to be the case for the NHL. But if you look at it from Austin Matthews' perspective, it's not just the total compensation package, which I think he's more than earned. I think he's a top three player in the league. Um, it's also like, I, if you take him at his word, he wants to win. I, I, this is not at all a comment about the Maple Leafs, but you, when the, the comps I kept, people are saying, well, you didn't say this about Jesper Bratt. Jesper Bratt is not an Austin Matthews comp, so stop sending me that. Then he sent it, oh, well, what about Nathan McKinnon? Look at what Nathan McKinnon has that Austin Matthews does not, right? And a lot of what the NHL is about is, especially these guys that are ultra athletes, ultra competitive, they want to get paid, they want to maximize their earnings, in, 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 just like anyone else on planet Earth. But many of these guys are wired, I want to win a title. And quite frankly, I, that you can't have a media landscape that talks about why the Maple Leafs cannot get over the hill over and over and over and over all day every day and in my and in my in my opinion justified at this point considering the, how good they've been in the regular season and how much they've struggled in the playoffs you can't juxtapose that against why wouldn't austin matthews sign an eight-year deal in toronto it's like maybe that's why like i don't know i feel like that's that's a reasonable <laughs> counter argument yeah. so to me like I, the, the argument that i think about matthews and maybe this is where i i should have went a little more wordy like if matthews He's got all the cards and he's got all the cards in the deck, right? If Matthews wants to see, stay in Toronto, he absolutely can because he's going to get that eight-year extension, whether it's today or next year or two years from now. Yeah. He can sign a two-year deal, a three-year deal in Toronto right now, maximize his earnings on that deal, and come two years from now, yes, yes, he accepts the risk of a major injury railroading this, and that's on him and the player agent, and that's a decision they have to make. But realistically speaking, two-ish two years from now, he could be in line to sign another eight-year deal that's 10 to 15% larger than the eight-year deal he would have signed now. So it's beneficial to the player. 
it's also benefit not just from a comp piece, but also from am I setting myself up in a way to win the title? Uh, I I would love to see not an Austin Matthews comment, more of a general NHL cap comment. I'd love to see shorter contracts in terms of max yeah. term. I don't think the I don't think the eight year deals. I I I don't know if the NBA's five year max deals is the right number. But I think the eight-year deals are a little bit too restrictive, um, especially now where we know what consu- what drives a lot of coverage is speculation, free agent signings, trades. I mean, that's a lot. All of these sports leagues that are 12 months yeah. a year are driven in large part off of what could happen, and it's it's weird to juxtapose that against the NHL. That literally just after like what July 7th, it's like oh, we're going to shut the doors until September 15th. We'll see you in Pennington, like. I, that's that's effectively what the NHL is. So I, I think there's opportunity there too from a business standpoint. I, I want to ask you a little bit about the Sens. Obviously, you covered them for a while. I'm here in Ottawa, but how do you, what do you make of maybe like the new ownership? How bright do you think the future is? And maybe what what do you think will happen with Debrinket? He seems to be out, but what do you think Dorian should do? Should he go for more future? Should he go for more win now? What do you just make of the Sens and, and their outlook going into next year? Um... I would say their outlook is neutral, slightly positive. Um, I'll I'll tell you why. <clears throat> I'm if I had to grade everything, negatives and positives. <clears throat> the thing that I think is that stands out to me most is I I do believe in their young core. I think it's a tip of the cap to Pierre Dorian and the scouting department and what they've been able to amass over the years. And let's let's call a spade a spade though on this. Like they completely destructed the organization to get to this point. Um, but I, I, I don't know how many times I've tweeted it. I don't know how many times I've written about it. I, the, all, with all the Brady Kachuk and Thomas Shabbat love that, that exists, completely justified. I think Tim Stutzla is, is, is on the road to superstardom in a way that these other guys are not. And I mean that in a truly good way. I think the lineup is reasonably deep enough to be a fringe playoff contender. I still think the defense needs work. I know there are a number of, number of people um, that that think this summer is hinging a lot on what they do in net. I think that's also reasonable. Um, it's a team with holes, but I think it's also a team with talent. I do think the part that scares me is the front office. And so I, I think when you raise the question of um, – <clears throat> What does Pierre Dorian do this summer? Um, I don't necessarily, I, I think a lot of this is going to be contingent on what the ownership timeline looks like and how willing they are to make decisions. I don't know that Pierre Dorian has necessarily earned himself more, more time in the seat. Um, I, when I mentioned the good move to bad move ratio, he'd be pretty low on that list. Um, like I said, feather in his cap on the, on the scouting and draft and development side, but I take the feather out because the, the Ottawa senators have to be a bottom five team in the league when it comes to evaluating NHL talent. Yeah. Um, they, they have to be one of the worst organizations and time and again, they lose these trades and it is, it is apparent. It is obvious. Um, I've seen arguments and there's probably truth to it under-resourced, underfunded scouting departments, no hockey analytics department that exists in reality. Um, a GM that was under the thumb of old ownership, like it, it runs the gamut. So that, again, a, just like every other organization, there's nuance there. I, I, I don't think he's done a terrible job, but I certainly, you look at the moves, it's hard to compare what Ottawa's front, it's hard to look at Ottawa's front office and then look at a Carolina or a Tampa or a Colorado or, and I, and this goes on and on and on at this point. Now it's not just three teams and say, yep, we're, we're on par, right? It's just, you, you're lying to yourself, right? So 
I, I, I expect that there's likely going to be change there. I think it would be justified. Um, on the Debrinke question in particular, I again, I, I don't think, and I, I think I said this last week when it became pretty obvious that he was going to leave. Um, I, I wouldn't grade this as necessarily an outright bad move by the Senators, but in hindsight, it was a miss. They were bad when they acquired him. They did not reach the postseason or come close with him. And now they're staring over the barrel of moving him or giving a qualifying offer, what, 7.2 or something? That's just not yeah. going to happen, right? So I, I they're going to lose the player. The one saving grace is he was good enough on an otherwise mediocre team that I think they'll be able to recoup assets as part of this trade. But again, like the same reason that I make the Matthews point about like, be smart now because you can be really smart later. There aren't a ton of teams that are like, yeah, I can drop $10 million on Alex to bring it AAV. Like I, there just isn't. And there's going to be more in a year or two. So maybe Ottawa gets 95 cents on the dollar. And that's, you know, in terms of some costs, that's pretty muted. And you know what, maybe job well done there, but um, again, there, there's just, it's not that the brink of trade or the decision was bad. I actually, like, I, I think at times he was good for the team. Um, I, it just goes, it, it, you can't measure it as a win. Right. And those losses continue to pile up under this current front office. And I, I do think, um, I, I think, I think maybe one of the more interesting debates in Ottawa that I think is, is a genuine debate. Cause I think there's arguments on both sides is, do you go after the coaching staff first? Because I know there's frustration with DJ Smith. That's always the easier bullet to fire anyway, in fairness. Or do you go after the front office? My argument on the front office piece, by the way, um, just to kind of pull this full circle, because I think the coaching argument is a slightly easier one to make, maybe has merit too. Um, <clears throat> the, the average time, most teams who go through rebuilds return to the postseason within a five-year window. I wrote this last year. And if you have a really successful rebuild, it's about three years. Now, get me wrong, right? It's a wide distribution. We've seen teams rebuild. And the Ottawa 2011-2012, right? We've seen yeah. teams rebuild 18 months later. You're like, uh, they're in the playoffs. Like, I, what happened here, right? So it's not so much a rebuild. Um, but most teams get there by year five, which makes sense, right? You think about it, you've rec you're trading away players for a year or two, you're recouping assets. Now these assets are finishing their entry-level contracts, potentially in the NHL, they're getting better. So you're starting building the tender. How many years is Ottawa into this now, right? So it's about, it's going on seven, right? It's yeah. going on seven. So they are easily on the right, far right tail of that distribution at this point. And I think that, you know, you can you can put that at the feet of DJ Smith to some degree, but you can't put it all the way there. And I it, the 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 that is the argument that I would make to people who say it's Smith that's kneecapped Dorian. Um, even if I say, hey, look, he's been a negative uh, behind the bench. That's that's a tough pill to swallow. I think if if you're if you're making a save the GM get rid of the coach argument, it's it's just taken way too long, and the team's just not there yet. I guess my last question on that just quickly is how much do you think there may be lack of depth, which they've had for a long, long time hampers them going forward because they've traded out so many assets for a guy like the Brinkett for, for Chikrin, for et cetera. It's not only that too, right? Like it's, I, <laughs> this is something I believe a ton in um, the, the one thing that the numbers world um, does very, very well at, very well at, maybe the best relative to scouts. And by the way, there's a ton of things scouts do better way relative to the numbers, guess. It's finding those diamond in the rough types who are maybe 
maybe and usually it's their on ice numbers are better than their counting stats and quite frankly mm -hmm. organizations miss this way too frequently it's more of the play drivers the possession drivers they might be extremely good attacking the puck off uh, you know off puck in the neutral zone they might be great defensively in the defensive third uh, but there there's there's a lot of evidence that they are driving on ice performance they don't have Ottawa like just look at the what occupied the bottom six and the players oh, that rotated yeah. in that lineup this year, whether it was Austin Watson or Patrick Bound or Derek Broussard. I mean, it's just a lot of guys who just aren't very good. And it's hard to understand what they are doing additively for lineups. And like I, I remember we talked about 12, 13 years ago. Ottawa had one of the best examples of a guy who you're like, is that guy any good? But he was insanely good. And it was Eric Conjure. We used to talk mm -hmm. about him all the time yeah. as a fourth line winger. He maybe gave you 10 goals a year, maybe. But I'll tell you what, no team outscored Eric Conjure when he was on the ice, mm -hmm. right? That was, and it was obvious, it was obvious evidence that he was persistently playing in the offensive zone and driving play. David Moss, previous, I mean, we, yeah. Nicholas Shalmerson. I mean, there's a laundry list of guys who weren't sexy names but really delivered value in a way that wasn't obvious in the counting stats. If you look at organizations that are well-run and you look at how organizations that are so-so run or poorly run, that tends to be one of the differentiators. You look further down the lineup and it's, yeah, you look, you play against the Carolina third or fourth line. They're going to, they're oh. going to, they're going to feed you in, right? Yeah, they're they're, they're going to knock your teeth out. Uh, you play against Ottawa's fourth line, you're going to run them over. And that, and that, that's a big differentiator between the two teams right now. And in the modern era, so competitive, margins very thin it matters a lot well travis i absolutely love this conversation this was great thanks so much for doing this anything at tsn or anywhere else that you want to plug before uh, you uh head off no i'm just begging you guys keep reading in the summer i know everyone goes to the cottages but i know you got an internet there travis sports network until september 15th until all the important people come back so uh please i i i'd save all my deep dive all the questions you guys ask me all the stuff that i'm like that's a big project and i have no I, there's no way i can get to it in the middle of january that's the stuff that i go after in the summer so please keep reading in the summer and then you can stop reading me come september well i'll definitely be reading you this summer and thanks so much travis for for taking the time and then coming on all right man take care appreciate you